Good morning to each of you. Our scripture text this morning is a long one. John chapter 8, verses 21 to 58. John chapter 8, verses 21 to 58. Uh, Last week we noticed, we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ is the light. That was made abundantly clear. We also noted that he is the light of the world, Jews and Gentiles, an inclusive statement. We noticed that he is the light of life. And we also noticed that he is only the light of life to those who follow him. And now in the remainder of the chapter, John chapter 8, we see the light in action. And we see the light manifesting truth. We see him revealing truth. We see him declaring truth. And there are a number of truths that we find in the rest of the chapter, but two really rise to the, to the, to the top. They really are, are front and center. And the first is Christ's deity. And we have sung a great deal this morning of Christ our Lord, Christ our God. And the second truth is man's depravity, his sinfulness. And so as I read this text for us this morning, I invite you to to enter into the text, enter into the narrative, and and give particular attention to those two truths. Try to, to reference them, take note of them as we read this portion of God's Word. So again, beginning in John chapter 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot 
bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. There, that is just a wonderful, a wonderful portion of God's word that pulsates with the person and ministry and character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's deity, man's depravity, you can't miss them, can you? As you read those, those verses, as you read that narrative, as you read that text, they just leap off the written page and they are as clear as the sun in the noonday sky. And we see them over and over again in these verses. It's almost like a cycle that Christ reiterates these two truths over and over again. His person, his deity, he is God. In man's darkness, man's depravity, man's sinfulness. And we can trace these two truths, these two doctrines in four, four groupings, if you like, four sections. In each, we have a different response on the part of the Jews. And so the first grouping is basically verses 21 through 25. And here Christ reveals his deity. Look at verse 23. He said to them, I am from above. Again, I am not of this world. We see it as well in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he. That is a blatant, bold claim to deity. To be the great I am. The God of creation, the God of redemption, I am He. He is proclaiming, declaring, revealing in no uncertain terms His identity. He is God. At the same time, He reveals their depravity, does He not? Verse 23, you are from below. You are of this world. Verse 24, you will die in your sins. How do they respond? Verse 25, they respond intellectually with a question. They said to him, hmm, who are you? And so they want to debate. They want to discuss. They want to argue. It's an intellectual response. Then we have a second section or a second grouping. Verse 26 through to verse 33. Again, Christ stresses his deity. Look just as an example at verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. Look at verse 29 again. He who sent me is with me. It's 
It's a claim to deity. It is a claim to be the son of God. And again, he emphasizes their depravity. Look, for example, at verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That statement, the truth will set you free, implies what? That they aren't free. That they are slaves. Slaves to what? He makes it clear. Verse 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And there's a response in this section. In the first section, they respond intellectually. Who are you? In this section, they respond emotionally. Verse 33, they answered him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They are struck to the quick. They've been insulted. You call us slaves? We aren't descendant from, uh, we aren't descendants of Hagar. We are descendants of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. We have never been the descendants of a slave. We are not slaves to anyone. How dare you suggest such a thing? We are offspring of Abraham. They're offended. And so they respond emotionally. Then we have a third section, verse 34 through to verse 48. And here again, Christ's deity throughout. Just look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. And again, their depravity. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires as if that weren't enough. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That is their depravity. And there's a response They respond personally. Verse 48, the Jews answered him. Personal attack. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Worst of the worst. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel here. This is the worst insult they could possibly think of and throw at an individual. You are a Samaritan. You are a half-breed. And you have a demon. Demon possessed. So they respond intellectually initially. Who are you? Then they respond personally, all offended. We are the children, the descendants, the offspring of Abraham. Now it's getting personal whereby they slander. Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? And then there's the fourth section. Verse 49, right through to the end. Verse 59. And here we see the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 54, by way of example. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. That is a claim to deity. It's even clearer, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we see, too, the revelation of their depravity. Verse 55. But you have not known him. You have not known him. And how do they respond? It's not merely intellectual now. Who are you? It's not merely a personal affront, personal, personal offense. We are the offspring of Abraham. It's not merely a verbal attack now, a slanderous attack. We are right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now they respond physically. Verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out. Of the temple. This is interesting. It's sad too. Extremely interesting. The greater his revelation, the greater their opposition. And here we see, do we not, the darkness of the mind, the hardness of their heart, and their alienated state from God. The the entire passage, the entire text, these verses, I believe, are, are summed up quite succinctly in verse 45. And this is an almost unbelievable statement, verse 45. But because, I mean, just let this seep in. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. In other words, if I were to lie, you would believe me. 
If I were to tell you what you wanted to hear, you would believe me. If I were to stroke you, so to speak, and tell you and give you and declare that which would build you up, build up your self-esteem, make you think wonderful thoughts about yourself, you would believe me. But here's the thing. I tell you the truth. And my word finds no place in your heart. The truth finds no place in your heart. And because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You would believe a lie. But the truth you cannot stomach. The truth you cannot handle. Let me suggest to you this morning, submit to you this morning, That there are six truths that the Lord Jesus reveals or declares to the Jews. These are six truths that they did not want to hear under any circumstances, under any condition. Six things, six facts, six truths that they can't bear to hear. And I will submit to you further that these are six truths that the natural man, the carnal man, the unbeliever will not bear, will not tolerate, and does not want to hear today. Nothing has changed. The condition of man has not changed. The state of man has not changed. And the darkness we see in the Jews is the prevailing darkness in man's hearts today. The first truth is this. I'm going to state them as if Christ were speaking to the Jews. The first is simply this. Your father is the devil. They don't want to hear that. Who wants to hear that? But he says it. Verse 38 makes it very clear. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Who is their father? Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There we stand with Adam and Eve in the garden. And there we've heard the prohibition from eating of the fruit of the knowledge of of, of good and evil. We know Eve eats. She shares with Adam. He too eats. God comes in judgment. There's the curse. There's the promised blessing. And we hear God say in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity. Fancy word for hatred. I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring. And right there in Genesis 3.15, we have the declaration of two humanities. There is an old humanity and there is a new humanity. There is an old humanity that is all those who find their spiritual father in the devil, the old serpent. And there is this new humanity, all those who find their spiritual father in God, who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. God declares, I'm going to put enmity between these two offsprings. I'm going to put enmity between these two seeds. I will put enmity between these two humanities. What Augustus of old called the city of man and the city of God and there will be this ongoing continual enmity between the two and the enmity erupts does it not it ruptures in chapter 4 with Cain who is of the city of man the seed of the serpent murdering righteous Abel who is of the city of God the seed of the woman And we trace these two humanities throughout human history and we see the world that is organized society in its rebellion toward God throughout human history. And we see also the seed of the woman, do we not? The new humanity. We see it in that godly seed from Seth to Noah. And then we see it in that godly seed from Noah to Abraham. And we see it in Abraham, the patriarchs, and Isaac and Jacob. And then we find it again in the believing remnant within the nation of Israel. And then we see it too in the New Testament church. And we see it ever since then, the church, as it has grown and flourished around the globe. Here is the seed of the woman. All those who are in Christ and have God Almighty as their spiritual father in marked contrast to all those who are still dead in their sin, the darkness of the mind, the hardness of their heart, and can only appeal to Satan himself as their father. They didn't want to hear that. 
And nobody today wants to hear that. Your father is the devil. That's not me saying that. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your father is the devil. The second truth he declares that they do not want to hear is you're enslaved to sin. Verse 32. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Implying what? Slavery. You aren't free. You're in bondage. Enslaved to what? Verse 34. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So sins of commission, sins of omission, the things we say, we think, we do, that we wish we had never done, things we label sins, they're merely symptomatic. They are merely symptoms of a greater plague, of a greater evil, of a greater problem, and that is sin itself and the fact that we are slaves to sin. Every disease, every physical disease you can think of has physical symptoms. A doctor is not concerned about the symptoms. The doctor wants to get at the disease itself. So too today, so many of us, we we, we focus upon the symptoms, the sins in and of themselves. When the real issue is the disease and the disease of sin and the fact that humanity, human nature, and every individual finds himself, finds herself enslaved to sin. God created us in His image. Adam and Eve, male and female, man and woman, in His very image. What does that mean? When we speak of the image of God, we have two things in view. First of all, we have before us what what theologians call the natural image of God. We are different from animals. I know that increasingly so we're not acting like it, but we are different from animals. We are different in that we have understanding and the ability to reason. We're different in that we have affections. Animals have passions and instincts and they act on fear. But we have affections whereby we are drawn to beauty and that which is good. And we have a will, the power of choice. And we choose according to our understanding, our reason, our mind. And we choose according to the affections of our heart. And this is the natural image of God in man. And it is what gives us human dignity. That we're created in God's image. So too, when we speak of God's image, we have not only His natural image in view, but His moral image. And when we speak of God's moral image, what do we mean? When you go to Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, we discover that the moral image of God consists of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. When Adam fell, he plunged himself and all humanity, his descendants, into sin, into slavery to sin, and the image of God was lost. Not the natural image of God. We still have understanding, affections, and will. But the moral image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, lost. And knowledge replaced with ignorance. Righteousness replaced with unrighteousness. Holiness replaced with unholiness. And because the moral image of God is lost, And we are alienated, separated from God. Our minds, therefore, are darkened. And our reasoning, even when it comes to spiritual things and spiritual truth, is darkened. Just look at the text. Christ declares that time and time again, does He not? Why do you not understand what I am saying? Because you have no appetite for my word. You can't discern my word. You are of your father, the devil. You are enslaved to sin. Your mind is darkened. And those affections which at one time as created by God in the garden were set upon God himself. They have now been turned from God and they are set upon self and upon sin. And therefore the will itself, the power of choice, free to choose, but will always choose in accordance with a darkened mind. And will always choose following hardened affections. And therefore will never turn to the truth. Will never abide in the truth. Will never embrace the truth. 
But man finds himself enslaved to his sin, captive to sin. I don't need to tell you that this. They didn't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. That is unpalatable and that is an understatement. Thirdly, third truth they don't want to hear. It doesn't matter who you are. Ooh, this is salt on an open wound. It does not matter who you are. Verse 33, what do they declare? We are offspring of Abraham. Listen, man, do you hear us? Offspring of Abraham. Doesn't get any better than that. And have never been enslaved to anyone. What's Christ's response? Verse 39. Well, they, they reiterate it. They repeat their claim. Verse 39, they answered him. Abraham is our father. What's Christ's response? Jesus said to them, same verse. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. He moves. He moves the point of discussion from physical descendancy to what? Spiritual descendancy. Yes, you may be Abraham's offspring, physically speaking, but you are not Abraham's children, spiritually speaking. For if you were, you would be doing what Abraham did. Here's what you're doing. You're seeking to kill me. Why? A man who has told you the truth. That's all I've done is tell you the truth. You don't want it. You can't bear it. You can't stand it. The truth that I heard from God. This isn't what Abraham did. Abraham heard the truth and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you were truly Abraham's descendants, spiritual descendants, if there was any affinity between you and Abraham, then you would act like Abraham, like father, like son. Abraham believed me. You would believe me, but you don't believe me. You want to kill me. Therefore, I could not care less if you are the physical descendants of Abraham. It makes no difference at all. It does not matter who you are claimed to be or what you think of yourself. Like father, like son, you want to kill me. You do not believe what I say. You are acting exactly like your father. True father. Spiritual father. The devil. They didn't want to hear that. And people today, oh, they do not want to hear that. We look at ourselves, our church attendance, our lineage, what we perceive to be our good deeds, what we perceive to be our warm personalities, what we think is so endearing about ourselves, and we will latch on to these things and hold on to these things for all we are worth. Every, every, every strand, conceivable strand of self-righteousness that we can gravitate to and latch onto, we will with all our might. Thinking that this somehow endears us to God. That this somehow makes us different. That this somehow sets us apart. You know, the words of Christ, they come home clear and true, do they not? It does not matter who you are. Men and women of all time, of all places, of all races, find themselves in precisely the same predicament. Their father is the devil, and they are enslaved to sin. Fourth truth they don't want to hear. There's no hope if you die in your sin. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. In case they missed it the first time, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Death is unavoidable, isn't it? James 4, 14. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And it's uncontrollable, isn't it? Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit. Or power over the day of death. Unavoidable, uncontrollable, and hopeless if we die in our sin. To die in sin and to have finally rejected God's offer of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be granted precisely what we want. 
That is an existence away from the presence of God. And that is what God gives. It's called hell. That's all hell is, isn't it? We dare not think of hell as as God casting people screaming and repenting and flailing about against their will into hell. With hell, all God is doing is giving men and women the, the full desires of their heart. He is giving them their wish. An eternal existence without him. Separated, alienated from every last vestige, every iota of goodness. Away eternally from the presence of God. If you die in your sin, there is no hope. In his dying words, Voltaire, great French philosopher, said to his doctor, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. No one ever talks about that in the universities, do they? So desperate were his cries as death approached. that The nurse who attended him said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another unbeliever die. Thomas Hobbes, famous English skeptic, declared on his deathbed his last word. If I had the whole world, I would give it to live but one day. There is no hope if you die in your sin. They don't want to hear that. And people today just don't even want to think about that. In denial, almost. The fifth truth they don't want to hear is this. I alone can set you free. I alone. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look too at verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from what? Firstly, free from the penalty of sin. We stand condemned in God's sight. We are by nature because the Father is our, the devil is our father and we're enslaved to sin. We are therefore by nature children of wrath. Paul tells us that in his epistle to the Ephesians. Children of wrath. We stand under the penalty of our sin. We will receive the just reward, the just fruits of our sin. God's wrath. Eternal separation from Him. But the Lord Jesus can set us free from the penalty of sin. How? Because He has borne that penalty on Calvary's cross when God the Father drew that veil of darkness over the cross for three hours. And there the Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for us, was made a curse for us. There He experienced hell itself as He was forsaken by the Father. Separation between Son and Father. And we hear the cry, as one theologian has put it, the cry of the damned in the words of Christ, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And it was but three hours of darkness. It was but a temporary separation. But because of His person, because of His deity, His suffering, there is infinite worth and merit in His suffering. Whereby He he removes the penalty that we deserve for our sin, that is eternal separation from God. Not only can He free us from the penalty of sin, He can free us from the power of sin. We've lost the image of God, the moral image. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are hardened. Our free wills are enslaved to our darkened minds and our hardened hearts. Yet Christ is the light, is He not? Christ is the light who penetrates the darkness, reveals the truth to us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God. That you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, were committed. That's the passive voice. You think back to school, those of you who can. You think back to English class, those of you who dare. Think back to grammar, if you can stomach it. Active voice, passive voice, right? I, I... I make the cake, active voice. 
The cake was made by me. Passive voice. There in Romans 6, 17, it's the passive voice. We give thanks to God. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Passive voice. It begs the question, committed by whom? In other words, we didn't do it. We were committed to that standard of teaching by God. It was God's sovereign grace that drew us to the truth. By God's sovereign grace, the light dawning upon our hearts and upon our minds, whereby in faith and repentance we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, declared so wonderfully in that hymn of Charles Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Brings us to the sixth truth they did not want to hear. Freedom, and listen very carefully, the wording is tricky, listen very carefully to this. Freedom, and this is as if Christ were speaking to the Jews, freedom is your ability to do what I want. That is freedom, true freedom. We dare not confuse free will and freedom. Free will is my ability to do what I want. Spiritual freedom, true freedom, is the ability to do what God wants. Being enslaved to sin, that is not a freedom we possess. We are in bondage to sin. And yet, what do we read there in, in verse, in verse uh, 32? Their claim that they are the, the offspring of Abraham, never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They don't understand the nature of their bondage to sin. Christ declares it so clearly in verse 34. And then he sets it out in plain language, verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free to do what? The answer found back in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's true freedom. There's true liberty. To know God's will as revealed in his word. To love God's will as revealed in his word. To desire to obey God's will as revealed in His Word. And now the freedom by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God Himself to obey God's will as revealed in His Word. Six truths they did not want to hear. And six truths the unbeliever, the natural man, the carnal man still today does not want to hear. Let me share with you quickly. As we think of these verses, and as we think of Christ's words there in verse 45 where he sums up the text, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Let me suggest to you that there are seven lessons we should take from what we have considered this morning. Uh, Seven truths we should take to heart, and I'll go quickly through these for the sake of time. The first is this, and I'm going to pause and give you a moment to ready yourself for because it's going to sound a bit strange when I say it. Uh, the first lesson is this, just things that leap, leap off the page uh, in my mind as I, as I read these verses. Uh, Christ isn't effeminate. Now you may have, what's, what's he talking about? Christ isn't effeminate. I, I take great comfort in that. As we look at medieval art and how Christ is depicted in art, oftentimes, when we look at movies that come out of Hollywood depicting the Lord Jesus Christ, 99.9% of the time, we're left with what impression? That he's some long-haired hippie running around half-dazed who never offends anyone, never upsets anyone, never tells anyone like it is, never offends anyone, 
but is effeminate, a pushover. And I don't mean any disrespect by this, by this because I know it's not true, but he is depicted as, as, a, as a wimp. Is he not? Why is that? The answer is simple. Man does not want a judge. Man does not want a prophet. Man does not want a king. Man does not want someone who will get in his face and tell him exactly like it is. Man does not want someone who will tell him the truth. Man wants a pushover. Man wants a weakling. But I hope we understand this, we grasp it, and and, and we rejoice in it. Christ is not effeminate. Dare I say, He's a man's man. And in these verses, we see this running battle, do we not, with the Jews. And He does not back down. And he declares the truth whether they want to hear it or not. He declares it without apology. He he declares it unequivocally. He declares it unapologetically. The truth will be heard. The light will shine. We should rejoice in that. Rejoice in such a glorious Savior. The second truth is this. As I read these verses, I'm struck by the fact that conviction, conviction isn't arrogance. By and large, we think it is today. We think conviction is arrogance. As G.K. Chesterton writes, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was supposed to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Conviction must not be confused with arrogance. Yes, at times we act out of pride. And probably more times than we care to admit, we are downright arrogant. But conviction itself and the declaration of truth, absolute truth, even in the midst of a relativistic and pluralistic society, is not arrogance. We see the Lord Jesus Christ standing up and telling it, saying it, declaring it, revealing it as it is. Revealing the truth. And we, should, we dare not see any pride there, do we? We dare not see any arrogance on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Christ who is truth simply declaring that truth. The third important lesson is this. Controversy is unavoidable. We view controversy like the plague today. Avoid it at all costs. And many times we should avoid controversy because oftentimes it's for petty reasons. More to do with personality than anything of any real consequence. But the problem is we've almost fallen into this mindset that all controversy is inherently evil. And yet we see in these verses the Lord Jesus in the middle of what? Controversy. Raging controversy. With no compromise on his part. John MacArthur, who's written a fair bit on this, puts it well. He says, multitudes, multitudes of biblically and doctrinally malnourished Christians have come to think of controversy as something that should always be avoided, whatever the cost. That is hard to maintain when we just look at Jesus. He is not a man who ran from controversy. He is a man who was prepared to endure controversy, endure opposition, endure terrible persecution. Why? In his desire to reveal the truth. The fourth lesson is this. Sin is radical. I'm sure you've already seen that. It is radical. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, implying what? They don't love God. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? Here's why. It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You hate it. That's what he's saying. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And your will, like father, like son, is to do your father's desires. Sin is radical. And here here is an important lesson for us to grasp and we, we, we do need to be cautious, don't we? 
We, I, and do not misunderstand what I'm saying. We must be sensitive, right? We must always seek to declare the truth in love, certainly. But here's the thing. If our doctrine of sin doesn't offend people, it probably isn't the Bible's doctrine of sin. The Bible's doctrine of sin is offensive. And the natural man despises it. And we shouldn't stand there like a deer caught in the headlights. When there's opposition, when we speak of man's sin and man's depravity and man's sinfulness, like, oh, what's going on? Something's wrong here. No, we should be surprised when there isn't opposition. When there isn't resistance. Because every time the light of the world opens his mouth, and every time he has something to say about his true nature, essence, and being as God, every time he has something to say about man and the reality and the depth of his sin, there is opposition. Why? Because sin is radical. And people do not want to hear it. Like people in the days of the prophet Isaiah. Do not prophesy to us what is right. Don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. It's exactly what the Jews wanted. Lie to us. is basically what they're saying in this text. Don't tell us the truth. Lie to us and we will believe you. That is how man, the natural man, will respond when he comes face to face with the truth of God's word and the light of the world. The fifth truth is this. Christ is sovereign. That comes out, does it not? Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, we do not free ourselves. You will be free indeed. The sixth truth. Redemption is transformational, isn't it? Man rejects God's word. Verse 37, fails to understand God's word. Verse 48, can't bear to hear God's word, verse 47, and refuses to believe God's word, verse 45. But when transforming power of God sets in, what's the response? Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's a complete change. Whereas at one time there, there, was, there was hatred for God's word. God's word was despised. There is now this love for God's word, a desire for God's word, a delight in God's word and a desire to obey. Understand this. We'll come back to it most certainly in chapter 10. But understand this now. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Do not be fooled, friends. That is not true faith. Many believed in him. In Greek, in the aorist tense, When we read that many believed in him, the aorist tense does not necessarily mean that that is true faith. Just look, just look briefly. I'm almost apologize for going down this road because we're opening up into a huge pasture. But we will come back to it in later chapters. Chapter two, verse twenty three. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. Look at chapter 12, verse 42. We see something very similar. Chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There is such a thing as false faith. And simply because they say they believe in him, we must not and dare not confuse that with true saving faith. And just as we hear individuals today declare faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that they believe, and then a short time after or a long time after they depart from the faith, never to darken the door of the church again, and we wonder, have they lost their salvation? No, it was never true faith. Because what does true faith look like? Christ makes it clear in our text in chapter 8, makes it Makes it abundantly clear. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Who did he say those words to? Look at the first part of verse 31. He said to the Jews who had believed in him. And I'm not fooled by what you profess verbally. I'm not fooled by what you perceive to be faith. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's the essence of true faith. 
abiding and persevering and obeying by God's grace, whereby that faith isn't merely mental assent or some verbal agreement, but is a faith that is rooted in the heart, a gift of God himself that flourishes and blooms and blossoms and issues forth in fruit and in obedience and in service. And the seventh lesson I want us to take from these verses is very simple. Salvation is free. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe, you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Christ does it all, does He not? He does it all beginning at the cross. He does it all by illuminating our minds and hearts, by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all that remains for us is to receive, to rest, to believe. One author has written concerning Spurgeon that as a boy he attended a service in a primitive Methodist chapel where a layman was preaching. The man had little learning and little to say. He stuck closely to his text, Isaiah 45, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. The man didn't even pronounce the words properly, but that didn't matter. He launched into his text and his message went like this. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It just says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth thousands of pounds a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. It's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. The text says, look unto me. At this point, he noticed Spurgeon and fixing his eyes on him as if he knew the struggle going on in the boy's heart. He continued, young man, you look miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey the text. Then lifting up his hands as only a good primitive Methodist could do, he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon did. Have you looked to Christ? I dare say there are some here this morning who have not. Please hear Christ's words to you, the truth as he himself declares it. Your father is the devil. You are enslaved to sin. It does not matter who you are. There is no hope if you die in your sin. I alone can set you free. And listen to his question in verse 46. And please ponder this, friend. If I tell you the truth, why? Do you not believe me?